This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the Arden Labs podcast, our special guest today, all the way from Tel Aviv. Here he is. Mickey Tebeka. Mickey. Oh Hello. my God, it's only like I saw you last week at GopherCon UK, man. I was running in the same circles. Yes, we had nice weather in London, and now I'm back to the hot and humid uh, coastal area of Israel. Yeah, well, I'm back in Miami, but you know what? <laughs> I don't care, dude. When I say I'm going to Miami, everybody's li- eyes light up. So that's enough for me to deal with the weather. No, I like it here. Just uh, I can go without the summer. Yeah, but you got air conditioning there. It's not like yeah. you can't hide from it at some level, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, imagine, imagine what eighty years ago, right? There's no AC eighty years ago, right? So yeah, I think about my father working in the earlier aeronautics industries in you know all these small places, no AC, doing uh, electricity for planes. It's like. How can they work? They didn't know any better, right? It yeah. was just your body was probably conditioned. That's why they live. That's why that generation lives so long, Mickey. They, <laughs> they had to like physically endure a lot, and their bodies were just like my grandfather when he came here from Italy, right? I mean, like his jobs were digging ditches and roads, and and before he ended up becoming a mechanic for the for TWA airline, he ended up being a mechanic. But I mean, before that, you had labor jobs and you were just outside using your like we don't do that we sit all day mickey i think this every day every generation looks at this next one and say they are spoiled really like we had it <laughs> so much harder. i don't think yeah, but i don't think our at least the grandparents my grandparents weren't spoiled i don't i don't i don't see that they they work harder i think they had less uh, they they dealt differently with things yeah, yeah, yeah for sure and for sure when we look at the new software people the new generation Let's explore that for a second before we jump in the time machine, right? <laughs> for sure, they have better tooling. You feel like they could be more productive, but at some level, and I'm sure the generation before us feels the same way. Yes. Like, are they losing their engineering chops because the tooling isn't forcing them to learn more or learn how to debug things? You know where I'm going there, so... So it's really interesting. Uh, there's a saying, I think Marshall McLuhan, that we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. So I think we worked with a different set of tools. We have a different kind of thinking. And the younger generation, they have other tools. So they think and they see other possibilities that sometimes we are blind to because uh, we're set in our ways already. For sure, the chat GPT for the programming side Yes. Find me 20 lines of code to do this or clean up my SQL. I mean, that's huge. I, I like, I'm not jealous that I haven't had it. I, I think it's amazing. If you're not using it at some level, like why? Uh, so I'm not using it for two reasons. Why is one is a legal one. I am a consultant. Most of my code is clients and I can't afford it going outside to some server to do the completion for me and back. And, and that's something that. You know, you need to think about that. Uh, I think last week, the Apache Foundation came out with a notice about how to use uh, these uh, ChatGPT tools and code um, copilot in uh, the Apache tool base. And it's really an interesting read about 
what you can do with that and how you can make sure that you're not actually being, getting an auto-completion for code that is not compatible with the license that you have. So that that's one issue. The second issue is that uh, I agree that for most of the things that are clean, clean up my SQL query, uh, write me a client to that REST API. This is probably great stuff. When I come out to the specialized stuff that you do and sometimes I do as well, I found out that it's either lacking knowledge or sometimes wrong. I've had some bad experience with trying to ask them about some topics that are not common and it was between wrong and not ideal. Yeah, I, I don't want it to do the engineering, but how many times have you spent an hour looking for those 20 lines of code for an API just so you can watch it work, right? And then you take it. Like, I've seen it be really valuable in, in, in saving time there. Yes, exactly. Exactly these places, I think it's going to really do a revolution. And I also see it when I'm teaching, you know, I give an assignment to the students and they tell me, hey, <laughs> it's done because I did it with Copilot. So uh, <laughs> th that's a problem also, you know, I, I need to think of problems that they can't find on Copilot. Uh, but sometimes just from the description of the problem, uh, it generates a good enough code for them to... But is it a problem? I mean, as a as an average practical developer, if you're hiring somebody to do that work, you want them to get the work done. Yes. Do I care that they use the calculator at the end of the day? Maybe in school, but not... In fact, if you're not using the calculator, again, why? So I find that interesting, but you feel like that student didn't gain what you wanted them to gain because... Yeah, the, the same thing with schools. We tell them start with other calculators so you'll understand numbers, you'll understand multiplication, you'll understand division. Once you got it, okay, go back to the calculator to do the long numbers, the things that computers are really good. But you want to shape your thinking. And if you just copy and paste, like uh, you do, and it was even before, you know, people just go to Stack Overflow, take the first answer, copy to the code, trans, that's it. They're done moving to the next one. But if you look on the long run, it might not fit the code base. It might not solve the problem efficiently enough. I don't think maybe, you know, as I said, maybe the tools are different and my way of thinking is too set to, to acknowledge that. It still feels like, especially when learning, take something ready and copy it over. That's not, that's not learning. I wonder if you can just tell the students at the beginning of class, turn off CodePilot. I don't want you using this and that. And if they still do, then it's on them, right? It's not on you. Yeah, in, in a way it helps because a lot of time when you learn a new language and most people that come to Go are coming from another language, it's really hard. You fight with the syntax. You don't remember the actual function names and the package name that does whatever you want it to do. So actually having something that will suggest that might help them. Um, not sure for the learning process, but will speed it up for sure. So there is a balance there. I'm not, not sure where to put a finger on, on the right place in the scale. All right. Give give everybody the two-minute drill on what you're doing today. What is Mickey doing today? I run my own small shop of consulting and teaching. I teach with other labs, which I highly enjoy and learn a lot from you. Um, I um, organize the GopherCon Israel and the PyData Israel conferences and the Go uh, Israel meetup. Um, I'm authoring books. I'm a LinkedIn learning um, creator, I think it's called. Where I have videos over there and I do a lot of other geeky stuff. <laughs> and that 
that's basically it what I do to these days. What's the book that you just or the books that you have? Effective Go Recipes uh, with the Programmatic Programmer. Uh, this is my first time writing with a publishing house, which is awesome. Uh, once you have a really good, experienced editor, and thank you, Margaret. I can't thank you enough for, for all the help. It really makes it so much better. So this is the one that's coming up. It's currently in beta, we're releasing chapters as they go, and I'm getting reviews. You know, still not happy with the code at all, but you're never happy with the code. So <laughs> trying to do not, not too many changes to, to make the editors uh, angry. But um, it's an interesting process writing. It's not easy. Technical writing is very, very hard I, I, and time consuming and draining. Uh, so anybody who writes a book and gets it done, I'm always enamored by that, that effort. Um, and I support anybody who writes a book, even, even anything that would quote unquote compete. <laughs> Uh, with mine, the effort is just so immense that um, I have to promote it. And uh, there's what what I really like about writing is that uh, someone said that writing is a way for the universe to show us how sloppy our thinking is, because once you need to place stuff, place things in writing and make it coherent and someone else to understand them, wow, uh, everything you thought it's pretty obvious is not even close. It's easy to talk about something. It's much harder to write because the context is always missing. And then you got to know where to draw the line on how much do I expect the reader to know so you don't go down that rabbit hole. Co context is everything. Like when people see something in one context and another, it's totally different. Uh, a lot of time when working with clients, if you don't set expectation rights, both for students and, and for projects, that, that's, that's a failure from the beginning. I, I came to courses, you know, saying this is advanced. I get people two months in doing something. It's not going to work. So you're essentially educating full-time, but I'm curious if you're working on any client projects to help keep your skill sets up. Because I find if I don't work on one client project a year, even for three months, I don't feel I can be as effective as a teacher in that room because everybody's working on a client project in, in there, right? Also, the, everything is changing so much. So you need to learn the new technologies and how people work and understand teams. I do it. I have to confess that the last year has been uh, hard. The economy was not great, so it was hard for me to find a project. So I'm playing around with open source projects and doing my own project. But in past years, since I started, I always worked uh, with at least one customer on projects that are in production to see what's going on there. Uh, it's really, really valuable. And also, once you see what people are struggling at work, you understand what's more important to teach them. Uh, when you do that. Yeah, my service repo, every time I work on a client project, it it improves tenfold yes. <laughs> for sure, right? And now I just came off of a client project. So you're not going to see a lot of activity and I don't really want to work on a client project right now for the rest of the year. <laughs> but next year, I'm going to feel it and we're going to jump in there and I'm going to use this code base and we're going to learn learn more. So yeah, I think it's important. Yeah, it's also what gives me new ideas like, okay, now, now I'm helping uh, optimize the system that detects bots. And then, okay, how do you uh, characterize the performance needs? How do you uh, actually test it? What are the places that you can do optimization? And from that comes a lot of interesting stuff that I can teach people. How how long have you had this business? I think, it, what do you call it? 360, I can't remember now, sorry. 353 solutions. Three, three, say 353 three. solutions. And it's 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 kind of a riddle for our listeners. It is related to Python, this number. So you're welcome to uh, 
go ahead and send me an email and figure it out. It's not that hard, but it is related. <laughs> so I, I've been um, working as a software developer since 97, give or take. Yeah, we're going to get there. I'm going I'm to throw you in the, in the time machine. I was just curious how long. Oh, okay. But uh, I, it started uh, when I came back to Israel. So this was 2000, I want to say nine years ago, something like that. Uh, this is nine years ago. Okay. Almost, yeah, almost as long as Arden. I think Arden, Arden's been around 11. So yeah, just around that time. Okay. I don't want to talk anymore about that because I want, I want to get there. I want to get our story in there. So I, I want to throw you in the time machine, um, as I call it. But before we do that, I need to know, I'm going to age you now, man. Uh, what year it was when you were essentially 17, when you were finishing your grade school and now you had to make that choice for service or university. What, what year was it when you sort of finished your, your, your high school, we're going to call it? So I finished high school 88. 88. Okay. No, stay there. Stay there. Stay there. Because I finished, that's when you were like 17, right? So, and I finished my high school in 87. So we're literally the same age then. And then uh, in Israel, you go to the army. I don't know, but I don't want to talk about that just yet. Hold, 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 hold back, hold back, hold back, hold back. Okay. Next question. Next question. We're going to get there, but next question. All right. Clear your mind. Clear your mind. Favorite question. Here it goes. I want you to show me the very first memory that pops in your head working on a computer that keep, you know, with that keyboard. Oh, wow. Uh, that was even before that. Um, my parents got me a, I think it was a ZX Spectrum machine. And they hired a student friend from university and we did some games in uh, basic. Wow, how old are you there, roughly? Uh, 15, 14-ish, something like that. All right, so you're in high school. Your parents bring home this computer. They actually were giving you, getting you lessons Yes. On, on writing a game in basic. A friend of the family was a CS student in, in a university close by, came over and was teaching me and my brother together. Your, is your brother older or younger? He's one year younger than me. Is, is he doing computers today? Is he doing anything? He's even harder. Right, okay. Oh, yeah. He's, he's hardcore. <laughs> what is he doing He's today? doing C++ on the GPU inside network. Um, oh, yeah. That's, that's hardcore right there. Somewhere in the balls of the, the hardware, with, currently in NVIDIA. What did your, what did your um, parents do at the time that they saw the value in, in that computer and the lessons? I think we asked them uh, for a computer. We were interested. So we asked them, they went abroad and they brought it back with them. You must have been excited. Do you remember when they walk in the house with this computer? You guys, are, your brother and you were fighting over time on this thing? I don't remember. I have a really, really bad memory. I joked that I have a one-bit memory, so I don't remember us fighting. Probably yes, two boys in the same house, so we fight. But uh, <laughs> wanting equal time, <laughs> yes, exactly. But I don't remember something specific. What else were you interested in um, during those years? You know, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Was it just engineering stuff, and or was it sports? What else? What else were you doing? We were doing a lot of hiking in Israel. Something I still do and love. Uh, so that's another passion. Um, I was an avid reader. Um, I could finish four books per week at, at some point. Uh, yeah. Is that speed reading or just? I, I read fast. It's not speed reading. I didn't learn that, but I, I read really, really fast. Um, most of that, like we were a good group of, group of friends. We we're doing hiking together, hanging out together. What kind of books were you reading? Was it fiction, nonfiction, all over the place? Um, mostly, mostly fiction, but, um, you know, sometimes they give us, uh, 
for books assignment for school assignment like the catcher and the rye and i just read it before even the year started because it is a good book mostly yeah mostly fiction well you do you still read like that today or that was just yeah i, I not the volume i can't i can't do the volume i you know but uh, i do read uh, today i also read a lot of technical stuff from technical books to blogs to to other things so i spend a lot of time reading um when you're about to graduate high school, you've already been training as a software developer. You've been, I'm sure you're writing programs at home, doing a lot of basic. And I imagine that you're thinking this is the path I want to take, but you have to go do your th what, three years of service. So I wasn't sure about, by the way, about computers. I also liked math a lot. So I was maybe math, maybe physics. These were also very interesting for me. So I, I wasn't sure. And then um, there's a pause in the army. And the army, I didn't touch a computer at all. It's something totally different. I'm going to ask you a question because I talked to Teva uh, a couple shows ago. He's much younger than us. I think, I think he graduated in 2003. And he had the option of going to university first before doing his service. And that's the path he took, which seemed pretty amazing because then when he went and did his service, he was doing technical things. You, you can do that. Was that an yeah, option? Yeah, it, it was an option then as well. Some of my friends from class did that. Uh, so it's it's like a deal that the army pays for school and then you stay longer in the army doing what you learn. Yeah, he was there longer, maybe like six years. Uh, I didn't go there. I wanted to go uh, to do army stuff. <laughs> you wanted to do the army stuff. You were excited about... Um, it's interesting. It's really challenging. Uh, there's a lot of, um, I think also all the friends and the place that I was, everyone was going to do uh, military, like infantry, air force, um, things that are more, uh, when you think about soldiers, that's that's what, what we did. Uh, and that's part of the thing. Um, you learn a lot about yourself during these years. So it's not a desk job. It's something else. I mean, and it's your first time you get to be out of the house and the first time you're on your own and that's exciting. Tell me a little bit about th that time. Like, share like some memories around. I don't know. One of the really cool, cool things that that happened during that sort of time in three years. So I started uh, by going, trying to be a fighter pilot, which is very tough to get in. And once you get in, I think the something like one of ten actually finish. Um, it took about three months <laughs> for me to uh, get out. Um, and I learned that, okay, I, I may know some stuff, but there are other things. And, and there I saw people that are not as educated as me uh, that came out, uh, barely finished high school. But when they go on a plane, they do much better. And I understood that there are... Oh, so you made the school. So you made the, the um, fighter pilot. You, you passed. I, I made a cut to, to start it, but I dropped out. It's, it's a two-year program. I dropped out or... I was forced to drop out because I didn't meet the expectations after about three months. And then I saw the different kind of intelligence or different kind of skill set that you have. Um, and this is something I still appreciate in people today that I know that for certain things that people, certain thing, people are better at and less than. It's not that you're smart, you're good at everything. And there are different kinds of smart as well, which is also interesting. You get through that program, you're basically talking about a, a military career at least for the beginning of your life you're not they, they they stay for in the army for a long while and after that when they do reserve to keep uh in flying shape i think they need to do at least one day a week so they're, they're there all the, all the time 
the, the pilots. But at the end of the day, you realized, did you, okay, did you realize that you weren't going to be able to really get through it all or you just lost interest in it after three months? Oh, no, I, I was told that you're not good enough. Uh, we, we did some um, tests in the, the middle. I was flying, not finding my place so much on, in the air. I like my feet on the ground. <laughs> uh, so, um, oh, dude, but you got to fly one of these machines at some. Yes, I, I did five or 10 flights. Yeah. And, and th these are the small system ones. Uh, no, there is an instructor there. You're not, you're not on your own. Okay. But still, dude, that's amazing experience. It is crazy. Uh, don't remember much from it. Told you my memory, but yeah, it, it's like, right. It's like being on a roller coaster that you control. You can decide when you do. I had an internship at um, Grumman, which is now Grumman Northrop. And I got in the, um, I don't know, my first year of internship. And they put us in one of these F-14 simulators. Dude, this thing didn't even move, okay? <laughs> it was just, you know, like three, 300, not 60, but maybe 190 degrees, right? So, so you couldn't see behind you. Thing didn't move. The pilot, I'm sitting in the front or the back seat. I don't remember. And this guy says, we're coming up to a mountain. When we go down a mountain, we invert to help. So he inverts. I almost threw up. I wasn't even moving, dude. I almost threw up. So I can't even imagine that with the Gs, with everything kind of, man. It, it can be crazy. For, for me, you know, it was a small place. The Cessnas, the, the propelled ones. But still, it, it's, it's a different experience. That doesn't work out for you. So that I guess they... Put you back in infantry, I guess. At that point, where do you go after that? Yeah, yeah. So, so there you. I'm I'm going to um, field artillery, um, and I'm going there to be finally an officer. Oh, an officer. Yeah. So, so I did. I went to officer school. This is also something that teaches you a lot about yourself, about responsibility, about how to think. Um, a lot of people look down at the army, saying, you know, this is. A big system uh, doesn't move uh, fast, has a lot of um, stagnation there. But I think that's what's interesting is that army is a concept. It's a system that's been around for thousands of years, and it's still working in a really tough condition. So they have something they know, <laughs> and you can learn from that uh, on on a lot of things. Uh, so yeah, things are moving. Maybe the army looks like it's it's backwards sometimes, but they have the reasons. Uh, to do that. And when you go there um, as an officer and you have soldiers and you're responsible, that's, and remember you finish that 20 something and they give you people. And I was a uh, first uh, instructor or in, in the boot camp for new soldiers. Um, and there was an interesting uh, episode that I remember. Uh, sometimes people come to Israel uh, to the country and they're older, they're not 18, they're like 30 or something. So we, we do them something fast through the army, like three months, and then they just do reserve duty. And this was one of my groups. It was interesting for me because now, you know, I'm commanding people who are, uh, I'm 21, they're 30, 40, uh, and they need to listen to what I'm saying. And, I, you know, we had a lot of arguments, which was interesting because I, I was very relaxed with these guys. It's not like they're the young people. Um, and we had a, one of them was a magician and he was doing all kinds of tricks. So he was smoking a cigarette and then um, the sergeant came to shout and cigarette is gone. Like, so the sergeant's <laughs> looking and then turning back and then cigarette pops up. I, I was laughing so much. 
it sounds to me like you really had it in your head that you were going to do more than three years. Yeah. I, I, my, my thought was I'm already there. Let, let's make the best of it. Let's, let's go to the interesting things. Let's, let's do stuff that is meaningful. And how long were you there for? Uh, four years. Oh, four years. So what happens four years in that you decide that, no, I'm not going to make this a career. So, so once you become an officer, you're obliged to do an extra year. And after that, it really depends on, on you and what they have to offer. Uh, I finished, uh, I was in Lebanon for a year and a half, give or take, uh, which was pretty taxing and I didn't want to go there. I didn't find anything that was that interesting. And a friend of mine was already uh, out of the army and he said, uh, hey, we have plane tickets to go uh, to do the big trip after the army. So, wow. where was the trip, dude? Sounds like a fun trip. Uh, so, yeah, we, we were, I was out for a year. Uh, started Australia, New Zealand, sailing to Vanuatu and Solomon Islands, and finally uh, base camp, Everest base camp in Nepal, and then back home. So that's like 93, 93, 94. 93, yeah. Okay, so you did your four years. You go have some fun. You come back. You got to do something. You got to be productive. Um, all your skills at this point are in managing soldiers, right? You haven't done anything technical in four years. So first of all, do you go back home at this point? Which has got to be impossible. Like, what do you do? No, I, I went home. I still had my room. Israel is so small that even in the army, uh, you come back on the weekends. Or not every weekend, but every other, or maybe every few weekends. Uh, so I was still there. Uh, I, when I came back from, from uh, the tour, I just missed the beginning of the school year. So I said, you know what, I'll, I'll do another year, just work, uh, get some money. So I'll have some for school. Um, and then I started school the year after. But what was the job? Just an just um. Oh, uh, I was uh, a tour guide, mostly hiking and repelling. Uh, you worked for a company that did that. Yeah, I worked for a company. That would, that sounds like a great job. I'm going to get paid to go hiking every uh, every day. So th that that's the thing. Uh, when you go hiking with your friends, it, this is fun. When you go hiking with people that you're responsible, it can be fun depending on the people. Sometimes they are out of shape. Sometimes. Um, they complain, uh, they don't, they're not happy. Uh, so, and you need to make, so it, it is, uh, there's sometimes people say that, uh, I had a hobby and then I made it a job and now I don't have a hobby anymore. Uh, so, so it's not, it's not that, but, um, I prefer to, you know, when, when I hike now, it's my friends, I trust them. I know them for uh, 50 years. We can, uh, the, the, the only thing I can make, the only thing in my head I can equivocate that to is like don't work in your favorite restaurant yeah like don't look at how the sausage <laughs> is made <laughs> yes sometimes it's that as well in a sense you know because it ruins it um it, it is work it's sometimes you know you start at 4 a.m you back home 10 p.m uh sometimes you stay overnight uh, it's, it's really hard work I, I love i love being outside so it was great for me but uh, it is hard work right so you're making all this money but then now you're going to go to university. So two things there. What are you going to study? And do you continue to work while you're at university or you made enough money? So I, I made enough money to, 
to just for the first year to just cruise along. I, I was still doing sometimes in weekends just to get a bit more money, uh, pocket change. But uh, I, I had a hard time deciding what I want to do. But eventually, I decided to go uh, to university in Beersheba, Ben Gurion University, uh, which has a computer science and math, which starts this. Everybody starts the same thing in the first year, and after that, you decide where do you want to go. And for me, it was a good thing because I said, now I can try both, see which one I like. Um, so I started there, uh, eventually decided on computer science, and that's where I went. So David told me that you had he had two choices, university or engineering school. It was one, and he didn't get into the engineering school, so he ended up going to university where he studied IT. Yeah, so at the time, uh, there was not that many engineering schools or colleges in, in Israel. Uh, these days, they would have way more. Uh, so most of the time for higher education, just one of the, I think, five big ones, and that's it. But you went in for computer science, and you you had, did you have to take a test for that, or you, you were just applying your end? I was applying. Uh, we have something which is standardized test we take before. I think it's similar to the SATs somewhat. And then um, your school, high school grades, and this is the criteria where you go in. I, I scored high enough on the SATs. I just went in without a problem. And then the first year, uh, you have to be... So they said, we have 50 uh, places in the computer science, so the top 50 will get there. So you have to make sure that you're in the top 50 out of, I think, 100 and something. So. But you're kind of starting fresh again because, man, it's been like five years, dude. You're, you're, you probably don't even remember much of anything that you were doing in the um, prior. Yeah, it, it was really so hard. What is, what is that, a five-year program? What is that? What is the university again? It's a f if you do the engineering, it's usually four. Uh, but I, I did just the Bachelor of Science, the BSc, so it's three years. Uh, I was really lucky at the beginning. I, I had a, I, I made friends with, with a guy, a lad, uh, who's actually way younger. He, he did the first going to the university and then the army, and he was a computer geek all, all around, so he knew his computers. And we hit it off and we studied together all the time. So he really helped me remember and, and learn everything there. Still one of the smartest people I know. Talk to me about that, those three years learning the computer science, because a lot of people that I talk to hate the theory aspects of it. And especially when you've done a little practical computing already and you go to university, you're just like pulling your hair out. Did you have some of those same experiences? Or you enjoyed all the theoretical stuff. So I liked it. Um, I, I say that uh, two kinds of people go to university. One kind is getting to get a degree and one kind is going to learn. Uh, the ones that are going to learn are having way more fun. And that was me. Uh, so I didn't care. If something was interesting, higher order logic courses that you almost guarantee the fail, I went there. I just enjoyed the stuff. I, I learned about it. Uh, meta evaluators in Prolog, which nobody uses, but still was interesting. I was going there. So I really enjoyed the, the theoretical stuff as well. Until uh, today, every year or so, I'm thinking maybe I should go back to university and do some, some more theoretical stuff. Uh, but I, I really enjoy coding as well. So. Did you end up with any internships while you were at university? No. No. So just straight heads, heads down, studying, and you're not really working. I'm working, as I said, the computer, uh, sorry, uh, hiking and, and other things, but not, not nothing technical. Nothing technical. And then, why, by the, okay, so here's the interesting thing. By the time you graduate university, it's probably 
98, you're 10 years older. You're like maybe like 27. And that's interesting to me. We were, I was talking about this in Israel is that at least in the States, usually you start a professional career. If you don't go to graduate school, right? You're, you're trying to start at 22, 23. But in Israel, you're starting at like 27, 28. Yeah. So, so for me, it was a bit longer. I started Intel at 27. So that was, uh, but if you think uh, 18 to 21 is the army, three years more, like 24, you start if you're doing uh, it straight up without taking any breaks. Uh, but it's still older, right? You, you start, but there is a value for that, uh, to being in the army and learning things about yourself. And I would say, I also tell my kids, like, you'll have enough years to work. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, enjoy <laughs> this time. It's, it's, it's something it's not going to return. Uh, work is there. It's waiting for you. you know, my daughter just finished graduate school. So she just got her first job and now she's, she's 26, right? It's the same thing. But the thing I said to her was, now you're going to work for the rest of your life. Like exactly. this is it, right? From, I, you don't see that because if this first half of your, or at least the first 20 something years of your life has been school and she was ecstatic that she doesn't have homework ever again. Right. But I'm like, now you work for the rest of your life. And they're like, yay. And I'm like, well, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> talk, talk to me in 10 years. Let's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so then as you're graduating, you're still living at home. You're, you're making some side income. You get your computer science degree. What, what was the degree kind of focused on? Did you do a lot of programming? There must have been a lot of Java. Like... Uh, we actually uh, did a lot of. Pascal, C. Oh, even back. Oh, yeah, it's the early 90s. It's the mid 90s. Yes, I did Pascal and C2 around. And those. And we had some teachers that really like uh, Scheme, which is a dialect of Lisp. Uh, so we did that. Uh, I did some Prolog, Perl, uh, depending on. All right. You're still in the, um, the pre-Java days of <laughs> university, yes. essentially, like me. Okay. All right. That's fair. Um, but now you're graduating, it's the late nineties. What are you going to do? What's on the radar screen? Now, now I'm applying for jobs. You know, I'm going out, uh, reaching out to companies, sending, uh, my CV and getting uh, interviewed. First one was a disaster. I froze. I didn't remember anything. Like they asked me some stupid question about flipping bits. And I was like, oh, I don't remember. Don't feel bad, man. My first interview, somebody wanted me to write the Towers of Hanoi. And my answer on the paper was, I did this too many times in university. I'm not doing it again. <laughs> I literally wrote that. Like I was so angry at that question. Obviously, I didn't get the job. <laughs> I think that was for IBM. There was a job at IBM in upstate New York. And I was just like, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but where do you end up? How long does it take for you to find a job in 1998 in Israel? Uh, I don't think a lot. I, I don't remember a long stretch. Uh, I think the market was ripe. I think, um, you know, it was the pre-first high-tech bubble in 2000. So everything was going up. Uh, we had uh, in Israel uh, the big companies, including uh, Intel and others. So... Um, and that's where I ended up in, in Intel in, in Haifa. And that's where I moved out as well. Oh, oh, you got a job at Intel, 
right out of, out of university. But, and you and you had to leave town. You had to go. I wanted. I, you know, the time was ripe. I was 27. It's time to go out. How far away is that from from Tel Aviv? Uh, about an hour, maybe a little bit more. Oh, it's no big deal. Nice, uh, an hour. So what was the job that you got? What, what were your responsibilities? Uh, th there is a tool that is still uh, in in uh, in the making in Intel. So they, they're still selling it. It's called Vtune. It's a profiler that helps you understand what's going on when your code is running on the CPU. Um, I came in uh, to the Vtune team uh, working on the UI, which was Visual Basic and some of the core components that were written in C. Did you enjoy that? I mean, that sounds like exciting work for somebody out of school. It, it was really interesting, also learning more about the hardware um, and to know what's what's going on there. Uh, it was interesting to write UI for the first time, which is an event-driven programming, which is totally different than what you usually do. So the UI ran on the machine that you were trying to get telemetry of the CPU out of? Yeah, it's a, it's a desktop application, like the good old days. <laughs> so, so we ran that. Uh, also, you know, learning um, the engineering stuff that you don't do at university. Source control, working in a team. Source control was still a new idea in 98. We, yeah. I remember. We used so safe. I, don't, I mean, it wasn't Git. I wasn't using Git back then. I think I was using SVN maybe. I don't remember. Uh, so it was predating SVN. And um, there was Source safe from Microsoft. That was what we were using. Source safe. That's what I was using. Source safe from Microsoft. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Microsoft, you got better, but this was really bad. Yeah, but it was still better than creating files with numbers on them. There's a quote from a person who started the GitHub. He said that the, the competition was not other source control. It was uh, version 1.0.zip. That's <laughs> and, and you even see that today at some, some people. Some really? Companies. Yeah. It's, I, I sometimes... Sometimes startups, they, they think that because they're a startup, they can throw away any engineering practice and just do whatever they want. And also Git sometimes has issues, especially if you're talking uh, with large files and I'm helping a lot of people in the data science area. And then you have large files of data uh, and then Git, Git is not usually not a good solution for that. There's Git LFS, but it's not, it's not there yet. Also uh, working at Intel, the big, CPU designs are also huge. They don't, I don't think Git will work for them as well. Yeah, I, I always keep things so simple and small. I don't ever run into these sorts of problems that people talk about, even with source safe. I never had a problem with source safe. It, it, it worked for me really, really well. It worked most of the time, but sometimes, uh, I remember times when you, source safe was open and then you did something in Visual Basic that saved it and it overrode something else that someone else was doing at the same time. There was no good locking mechanism there. You know what? I wasn't working in teams like I do today with like, that's probably why I was always back then working. Yeah. For solo, it was great. It was great. Yeah. I could see where in teams you could get it working in teams, sharing a file and you probably get in trouble. Okay. So how long are you at Intel? Uh, three and a half years. So about three and a half. So now we're we're in that two thousand two thousand one yes. yes. sort of time frame. What happens that you decide to leave 
Intel. Are you bored? Yes. An opportunity exactly. that comes across? No, I, I got bored. I, I moved, I worked on Vitium, then I moved to another project, uh, which was interesting. Uh, I wrote there, uh, it was the beginning of the .NET, and I wrote uh, a tool to understand the debug information in the CLR.NET uh, application. But it wasn't a good fit for me in the team. Uh, I wasn't, you know, the team wasn't, we didn't click. And um, I, I felt bored. I felt like I want to do some other things. Uh, so I left. Did you find a job first? And, and how were you looking for that next job? No, I, I didn't find a job first. I just, I'm a very optimistic person, always, till today. Uh, so I just go out and said, it will be fine. Uh, you know. So you were saving money then. You weren't you weren't spending your entire salary every month. No, no, we were saving money. Reserves. But still, uh, two kids. You said we. What do you mean we were saving money? My wife uh, and I. So uh, she, she's, oh, she's in charge. I didn't know when she entered the picture. So what's going on there? Uh, 2000, she entered the picture. So you met her while you were working at Intel. Yes, I met her while working at Intel. I took an um, unpaid leave uh, to do four months in the States with her. And when I came back, I dropped to about, I think, 60% job. And I did started working on my uh, master's degree, which I didn't finish. Wait, wait, hold on. You're, mo you're moving too fast. Bro. I can't keep this time frame up. Hold on a second. You're at Intel working there in Israel. It's about the year 2000. You meet, uh, who is now your wife. You meet, first of all, how did you meet? Is she an engineer? She was an engineer too? She, she was a student at the university back then. That's just graduating. Random chance that you that you met her. Yeah, for, for mutual friends and. But now you talk about going to the U.S. So I I don't understand. Was she going to school in the U.S.? No, no. She she finished. Uh, we said we said before we getting married, we want to to do something together. So we 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 wanted to hike in the states on on the Rocky Mountains. Um, so I came to my boss and told him, "Hey, I'm leaving Intel because I want to go for months out." Tell me, not so fast. <laughs> you go out, you go back. <laughs> and I told him, oh, and I told him that after that, I want to start my master's degree. So he told me, let's find a, another way. Um, so we went to the States. We did the four months going from Denver to Calgary in Canada and back on. Dude, this is mind-blowing to me. How long had you known her from the time that you went? A bit less than a year, I think. Okay. It wasn't like... Suddenly she popped up in the store and I'm like, yeah, I known her for a month and we, we both just graduated and we decided to go together to the state. Like that was like mind blowing. All right. So, you know, you'd been dating already for almost a year and you decide, okay, you're going to do those four months. So you go do those four months, you come back. Intel is still trying to keep you, but you're like, no, I'm going to go get my master's degree. Yeah. And then, and then they made me an offer. They said, okay, we, we'll help you with your uh, fee, with your tuition. And we'll give you um, not work only three days a week. And we will make that happen somehow. And you said no. No, I said yes. But oh, okay. I said yes. <laughs> but after a while, I, I said, you know, this is not working out. I, it's, I understand that, but it's not, not something that happens. So I quit. And you go school full time. Uh, I'm, it was rough. Not school full time. I also did school very low key. Uh, it took me a while. Um, I also didn't graduate the, the master's, uh, everything, including a thesis that does not work <laughs> and I didn't want to do a new one. So 
So when you leave Intel, I guess then you're saying you got another job. Yeah, I was looking, and, and this was right after the, the first high-tech bubble collapsed in 2000, if you remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it took me several months between, I think, around six months to find a new job. I was learning. I was at home. It was a great time, by the way. So you moved back to Tel Aviv at that point? Oh, uh, no. We were, by then, we, we bought our own house uh, around Haifa. And we were living there. So when you got back to the States, you did you get married at that point? You got married? When we got back from the States, we got married shortly after. Yes. And then uh, we bought a house around the Haifa area and we moved there. That was fast, dude. Yeah. yeah like, no fooling around. No. I mean, you met, you go do like your whole life changes in the scope of 12 months. Yeah, that was really a big change. And and our... F wow. And... A year later, even less, our first one was born. So and then oh, then another year, really another one. Yeah, that was really fast. <laughs> Do your parents ever say to you, like, slow down? Or they're just, uh, like, no. everybody's just happy and thrilled? There, look, me and my brother also um, almost a year and something apart. So it was a good experience for me. So I wanted the same for my daughters, which they have, I hope. Wow. So you bought, okay. You got married. You bought that house. She's working at that point too then? Uh, I, I don't think so. I think uh, around the time uh, our first one was born and she was a full-time mom for for that. And then you got to find, so eventually you find another job with about six months in the year 2000, about halfway through the year. Uh, wow. I, I probably have to look at my LinkedIn profile to remember everything. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, I have a lot of guests who bring up their uh, LinkedIn to look at their CV to remember. That's fair. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was a startup. Uh, we were doing uh, something in uh, the travel area of things. Um, and then 9-11. Uh, 9-11 mm, hits. Yeah, 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 yeah. From there, I moved to another, I think it was a startup that was acquired by Applied Materials for a while. And th this was actually cool. Uh, th they had this device there's the wafer that you make the CPU from, and it has sometimes small particles that you want to clean it up. And they, they build this machine that puts a drop of water on the particle and then shoots a laser beam on it and cleans the cleans the wafer. So part of the manufacturing process. Yeah. So um, what was your job there, though? So the software that actually controls the machine, uh, that goes where the vision finds the things. That that had to be all C, right? There was, there was that in C? It was C, yeah. It was mostly C. Did you enjoy that work? I guess you got to manipulate some hardware. Uh, in in a way, yeah. It's it's interesting, and it's interesting also to see the software actually doing something. You know, not just moving pixels around, but moving actually machinery. So that that was also. Um, How do you test that stuff? Do you, do you have to test it in a simulator and then pray it works. Uh, so yeah, you you try some simulations. You do some some things on. Uh, yeah. It's it's not easy. No, but the first time you get a wafer clean, you must feel pretty excited. Yeah, that was. I, I came back. It was almost done. I just finished, you know, with the the last thing. But it was really interesting to see how things and. How long did you stay at that company? I feel like that would have been a cool job. I want to say a year. Not sure. And then I moved to, uh, if I remember correctly, to a company that makes DVDs, manufacturing DVDs. So th there's a lot of manufacturing in Israel at that time. Because I feel like that's what you're doing. Yeah, I, I did. I, I spent a lot of time in hardware companies uh, at the beginning, which was interesting in one way because you learn a lot about hardware and the need. 
And sometimes it's frustrating because you're a second class citizen there. Uh, the, the budget, the big budgets and, and the focus go to the hardware. The, what they understand is that without software, you cannot sell hardware. There's no, I can't just sell you the metal and that's it. You, you need some things. Yeah, yeah, no, it has to work. It has, there has to be, yeah. And, and you see some things, for example, um, at this company, they said, uh, we don't really need an operating system. We just run the code on the, on the CPU. It was their own CPU. And then someone said, you know what, but we need an interrupt. And then someone said, yes, but you know what, we need some layer of storage. And after a while, you write your own operating system, which is pretty crap, I have to say, uh, versus if you invested upfront time to take one that is already made, you'd be in a better place. Wow. But that's, I mean, you're learning really low, lower level sort of computing. So yeah, I, I was in uh, writing tools for developers, which is something I still love to do um, a lot of times. And I was with a team that worked on the audio CPU that was processing the audio from, from the DVD, uh, doing hardware simulators uh, and debuggers for them. Uh, and this is a C++ and Python. How long are you at that company? Year and a half, two years, I think. It's like every year, year and a half, you get bored or you just don't feel like there's a growth path for you? I, I thought there was no growth path. I got bored. For, for a long time, Intel, which was three and a half years, was the longest job I held. Uh, mostly boredom, but uh, sometimes, you know, management changes, uh, other things. I went through a couple of those where the management changes and now, you know, the whole vibe changes and it's just, it's not the same place. So you just know that you have to, you have, you have to leave. And, and the time I was there, uh, DVD became something that you bought for good money to something that you almost got for free. And then the focus is totally changing. Instead of making something good, you make something cheap. So, uh, Everything is on the cheap side, and then it starts to trickle to uh, employees and, and other things. Which so you start looking again? Are you like looking first, or just leaving and looking? So, so um, th this is where I made another big leap, and we decided, uh, my wife and I, that we want to uh, move to the states for a while. And I was starting. What year is this now? We're talking two thousand and six ish. 2006. Oh, okay. Uh, and I was interviewing with some companies in overboard in, in the US. And then uh, one of them gave me an offer, which was a really good offer. Which city? It's a high frequency trading company. Uh, it's a small one in Beverly Hills. In Beverly Hills, California. 90210. So let me, let me ask you a question before you continue there. Why, why did you want to go? What did you think the states were going to give? you and your family at that point? There, there are several. One is my kids will get fluent English. And English is the international language. So and until today, I get them laughing at my English. Uh, and then uh, you want to live somewhere else. It's, it's a different way of looking at things. Uh, Israel is home, but it's very stressful and um, it's hectic. And there it was easier and and your kids are still young. They're not even in school yet, right? Four or like five, four. yes. Your oldest yeah. is maybe four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About three months from the day I talked to them until the day we actually landed in LA. And then we were there. That's wild. You didn't go ahead, find a place, all that. You just 
You land as a family. They 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 gave us uh, accommodation for the first month or so, like a um, housing place. Just come over, you know. Uh, but you're not living in Beverly Hills, so I, I don't know that area. Uh, I, actually, yes, uh, I'm actually there. You know, it's not. I I wasn't living in the big houses you see in the movies. Like it's an apartment in a, in a place, but it's it's still. Uh, the joke was we really were in the zip code nine zero two one zero. That's uh, that's the zip code, um, and and for me that was also um, professionally was a really big uh, thing, because the company was hiring top notch professionals. I came in and I read that guy book. I know this guy from the project is like it was really. Um, was it an Israeli company? No, no. So what was your job going to be at this company? Why did they hire you? So they wanted to hire people. Um, there was some Jewish connection, I think, but basically they just opened, um, saying we, we, we hire developers and I did some interviews and I passed, um, they wanted me to come in and write a system that analyzes news articles and presents traders with relative ones to what they're doing right now. And mm. uh, that, that was the job, which was for me always interesting. I always like. Uh, this area of um, computers and and language. This is what I did for my masters. Uh, did you did you have to scrape, or were you able to use the XML feeds? So we we got feeds from a news agency. You pay them top dollar, so they send them away. This is Reuters and Bloomberg and others. Um, the, you get them in various formats, and sometimes also from online scraping. But uh, for me, it's also was interesting because it's another world uh, of you know, trading money, uh, stock markets, futures, uh, currencies, uh, a lot, a lot. Do you have to wear a suit every day? Was this a, I have to wear a suit job? No, okay. No, th this is West Coast. This is not. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah not it's I know, but it's Beverly Hills Financial. So my brain still says you got to wear a suit. I, I that's, a, that's a small private company. You come in the building, you don't even see their name on anywhere. It's just that they try to keep a, a low profile. Did you build the product? Were you able to build it? Uh, not to production, no. It worked not well enough. Uh, we tried to tweak it, and then we had some dispute between two owners. The company split to two parts. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, Nightmare. But, uh, yeah. But, uh, in that case, yes. But I had the time for my life. Really, really, really smart people working with them. Um, I was learning so much all the time. So how long were you at this company before the whole thing? Uh, so uh, also around three, three and a half years. Okay. So you were able to establish yourself then at least in the U.S. And you, all right. But now you want to get another job. You need another company to sponsor work fees and all that. And I'll, I'll just say that at that time, I also started looking at, uh, around the time, started looking at, at Go and other languages. So this is where I roughly started uh, with Go. Uh, I was doing Python out before that so uh when i asked my yeah but you got there in 2006 so three to four years later go is 2010 i don't think it's a... yeah that's the very beginning we still had the make files now the go tool like the 6c and the 6l and all of these uh, yeah 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 yeah. Uh, yeah but i i was especially because i was coming from the job i was doing at that company i was looking for something that does servers with with a lot of uh, connections and I was looking at languages that are a good fit for that. And I looked at Go, I looked at Erlang, and I looked at Clojure uh, at the time. 
at that time, Go was really at the infancy with everything. And it was, looked for me at the first time, like, okay, that's maybe a bit better. Uh, and I really like dynamic languages and Lisp languages. So I went with Clojure. And I helped organize the Clojure meetup in, in LA and, and wrote some libraries. But eventually, if, if you go on the path of, of these open source and uh, languages, uh, I really don't like Java. <laughs> 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 and, and I couldn't. At the beginning of the in Clojure, you had to lean a lot on Java. There was not a lot in the language. So you had to lean on. Uh, so I went. I came back to, to go and the rest is history. So what's your next job at that point? Because it's not just that easy to interview. You got to interview companies that will. Yes. Yeah. So I interviewed, um, I interviewed, I went uh, in, in LA, there's a lot of media companies. Uh, so I went to interview and I found one, which was an ad network. Uh, it was a Java shop mostly. So. As I said, I don't like Java, but uh, the place was interesting. Uh, the, the scale was really impressive. And the head of engineering, um, I learned so much from him. He he, he basically, um, he says, my, my goal in life is never, wake up get, never waking up at 4 a.m. So we build everything on all technologies, very dumb, but it just worked. But what problems were they solve, or what problems were you solving at the media company? For for example, imagine that uh, someone has a campaign to show ads, and they give you a budget, but now you have a uh, hundred or a thousand servers serving ads. How do you synchronize the budget between all of these servers to make sure that it actually uh, don't overspend or underspend uh, the budget? And you distribute that appropriately so it's not all spent in an hour. This was interesting. Uh, the data warehouse, we were getting to the really edges of Postgres at the time. Uh, we, we we were starting with Hadoop for big data. I did. But you were dropping ads on web pages, social media pages at the time? So basically what, what an ad network is doing is that um, the publisher is saying, these are the ads and we want to sell this amount. And then you have um, places selling, now I'm going to start a page. I'm, I'm willing to show an ad. I'm going to put my, your widget on here and you need to rotate the ads through. Yeah. So basically your server is getting saying, uh, this is the page that's coming up. We need to put an under what, what's the, what's the HTML for the ad. You need, need to do it fast. Well, the, and I guess these were also the early days of, of algorithms that were trying to provide content based appropriate ads. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Is that company still around? Because I feel like Google destroyed these companies. Uh, so th this one uh, was sold. And I think the one that bought them is still around. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, go yeah, Google and Facebook has most of the space, but there's still place for, for some other ones. Um, in Israel, we have uh, both uh, Outbrain and Tabula, which are pretty big in this uh, area as well. All right, so how long are you with this company? Because you started, I don't even know what year we're in anymore. Uh, so 2000, I want to say. Nine, eight, 10. Nine, yeah, something like that, yeah. The timeline will not come completely 100% because my memory is not that great, but. No, it's okay. It's close. I'm just trying to get a sense of time there, but. Uh, so I, I think two and a half years, give or take. Um, then another management change, which didn't work out. 
so I went to another media company that someone from the old company moved there before me and he just brought, brought me over. Um, and I stayed there again until we left, until we came back here. So at that point, you decide it's time to go back to the kids. know. at that point, the kids are probably your oldest is probably in middle school, junior high school at that point. Yeah. And now yeah. you say, OK, we've accomplished what we wanted with the English. And then knowing, were the kids excited about moving back to Israel? No. Uh, basically, <laughs> I was the only one uh, wanting to go back. Uh, for me, uh, for me, it was, uh, I, I was uh, saying it's like being at a good friend's house. Like it's, it's really fun. It's, it's great, but it's not my home. Uh, and after eight years, I said enough. So we moved. Uh, this was really hard. You eventually convinced everybody or was it just, um, yes. You put your foot down and said, I'm moving yeah. back. Yeah. 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 Someone, something like that. It was, it was, it was hard. Um, and we came here, uh, the company still wanted to work with me. So, uh, this is where I started my company. Uh, so they didn't have an office in Israel. Uh, so I said, uh, you know what, uh, just open a company so I can send you invoices. And that's, that's a start of what, what I'm actually running these days. Brilliant. So that leads to you being able to move back and start your business. I'm curious. I don't know if you've ever asked at least the kids or is everybody now happy that you moved back or are they still? Uh, we, we talk with them and I think they're happy. Yes, they, they are happy. They're Israelis. They're, the language is back. Uh, they have great friends. I wanted them really to do high school here because I know my best friends are from high school. I wanted them to be here in high school and do that. They, they also finished the army. So now they're on the way to university. Yeah. So now they, they look back on it as uh, I appreciate what dad did. Yeah. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a good, it's a good conversation to have with them in a few more years and just, it'll be interesting. Your wife is happy now though. Yes. She's, she's her. Yeah. Yeah. So then you get to start. So that's it. Now that's the start of this company that you have now. But the majority of your early years here is on Python. Yes. Yes. So I started Python. Um, I worked, as I said, for the company uh, in the US, the original one. Even though I wrote there something in Go uh, at one point or another. Uh, but uh, they were not happy with me. Uh, I told them uh, there was a design document which I wrote, like we need to do some proxy. The, the best fit for that, uh, according to me, is Go. I published that. The problem I see, and I, I have it also with clients, like uh, I write an RFC request for comments. Nobody reads that. Only when you actually give them the software, they start saying, why is that like that? So uh, <laughs> that was my first uh, Go product and also my, my a good understanding about data pipelines because we I spent about two months solving the wrong problem uh, in, a, in a different part of the pipeline that it should have been. Um, and then I started getting some customers here wanting to help them shape things in Python. And then um, I worked in... Um, in the first two companies. Oh, I forgot Sauce Labs. So between the high frequency trading and the ad network, I was working for Sauce Labs, which is a company that does Selenium as a service. And they're in San Francisco. So this was my first time working from home remotely uh, to a company. Um, and there I wrote the 
I started again with Go and I wrote my uh, the, the the Selenium bindings for Go. That was my entry project. Um, so that was there as well. Um, so when I'm back here in Israel, uh, I so Raymond Hettinger, who's big in the Python world, uh, and I learned so much from him. Uh, he's uh, having his own teaching. And when we're in the States, I, I told him, I, I can't work. Uh, my visa won't allow me to work to teach for you. And coming back to Israel, he sent me an email. Now you can work. Here's Europe. Uh, so I started teaching. And that was my first time teaching commercially. I, I did it a lot in companies when I was uh, just an employee. For I, I enjoyed it, like showing the other engineer what I learned and, and other things, but not, not professionally. And I found out that I really, really like it, um, becoming better at that. So uh, I started doing it also in Israel. Um, and that's basically the last eight years, give or take. But at some point in this eight years, you're, you're heavy Python. I, I would argue now you're heavy Go. So when, when does this sort of, when does it like switch halfway through just in the last few years? Uh, I, I would say I'm right now 60, 40 Go to Python give or take. It really depends on, on the years and customers. Um, Go become more dominant, I would say, in the last four years, give or take. More more companies are using that. I see it a lot here in Israel. Uh, I, I say it, it, uh, it's a silent revolution. Companies are switching, uh, because companies are switching internal APIs and servers to from Java, Python, Ruby to, to Go, but they're not talking about it publicly. And then you, they come to our meetup and then, oh, you're doing Go as well. Yes, and you're doing Go as well. And okay, but you have one of these businesses where you have to be thinking a year. A, in order to stay competitive, you have to almost predict a year out to give yourself enough time to learn it so you're there. That, that's my entire job, predicting a year out. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, and we gamble, right? Because we never know if it's going to be actual uh, good technology or not, if it's going to stick or not. So I took a big gamble on Go when just at the very beginning, and it paid off. Uh, very happy with that. And from what I'm seeing right now, um, the things that I teach uh, in the data science world, in, in the Go ecosystem, are still very relevant. Uh, still a lot of newbies coming to Go. Uh, they not not there might be experienced developers, but they don't know the language, and there are still um, a lot of people doing data analytics and data science. That starting with Python, but Python I also do very advanced stuff, uh, also in Go. But it's it's less than what you see in people. Thinking a year out, uh, I know people are asking me a lot about um, Gen AI, the ChatGPT, and other things. Uh, I like to let that. Uh, bubble burst a little bit and then see where it's going because right now I think it's it's top hype and I'm not sure where it's going. Um, I, I, I don't know if your goals are to keep this company for the next two decades or to get out in 10 years, but let's say that you were going to keep it. Let's say your goal is another 15 years, right? Before you get out. Do you still think you can survive and grow a company focus just on Python and Go for the next 15 years? Or do you think another language has to come into your uh, toolbox? That's a really good question. Um, I think 
Um, I think on Python Go, yes, because Python uh, Python is 32 years old, right? That's that's the language, and it's still there, and it's still um, used a lot. Uh, it's going places just now. Uh, Microsoft announced that you can run Python in Excel. Uh, so it is still very dominant in what I teach people. Uh, so, you know, technology change. Sometimes you use different libraries, you use uh, different package managers. Uh, there are things that change, but the language itself and the basics, I think are still pretty there. Um, so you can think you can get some consulting gigs, but the demand for Python training has to have decreased and Go is increasing. Uh, not that much, not that much. No, I see. I see both. Uh, Python really reinvents itself every time. At the beginning, it was a scripting language. Then everybody was writing services in Python, and now it's a data science language. So um, it is there to stay for and and go. I think Go is in a good place because of Docker and Kubernetes. Uh, there's a big foundation of critical software that is using uh, Go. So you never look. Uh, I'm talking to one of the banks right now uh, about a system written in COBOL. So <laughs> all technology is still there. Uh, I, I will probably need to change, but I think what is mostly going to change, especially in teaching, is how we teach uh, more than what we teach. Because post-COVID, uh, people prefer remote, even though I think it's way less effective. Uh, people don't have that much attention span. Um, we talked about the, the Gen AI tools, the um, using Copilot in, in classroom and other things. So I think there it's actually going to be more interesting about how it's going to work, because I'm not not 100% sure that you know the current content and the way of delivery that we we have right now uh, is a good fit uh, to this generation. Uh, all these kids now starting in high school are taking virtual classes at this point in high school and college. So the idea of us teaching virtually is not, it's commonplace for them. Like that's how they're taking the majority of their classes, um, at least not in high school so much, but they start in high school, but in college you have the choices now. So I, I feel like it's a shame because just like you, I'd rather be in the classroom I love the conferences because I get to do that. And it's really hard when you're teaching from from remote um, to see the faces, to get to see if they're getting it or not. When I look at the class, you know, I can see right away who's getting it, who's not, who's bored. Um, a lot of time, even though you ask people to keep the camera open and the mic open, they close it. And beg people to keep the yes, cameras yeah, on. We beg them. <laughs> just, just, and the, there was one company that I was teaching, two, two funny stories about that. One is that there was one company I was teaching and I was feeling like, I was even asking, how are you today? And not getting any responses. And then eventually after the class, I went, I reached offline to the, to the team leader and said, yeah, we had a big production crisis. So we just left you in the background and went to, to fix something else. And I said, please tell me that next time we can reschedule or something, but why? Yeah, because we're going to go back and watch the recordings. No, you're not. You're never going to go back and watch the recordings. That moment's gone. Yeah. And, and the second funny thing was that I was actually uh, going to a company, uh, to their offices, and I'm getting to the offices. And some people are there, but not the people who I need to teach. And they forgot to tell the people to come to the office that day. 
So I was sitting in their office teaching remote all of their people at home. <laughs> because Dude, that happened to me going to uh, Maersk. I show up in Copenhagen, Maersk, and the guy's like, why are you here? And I'm like, because I had a training scheduled. They're like, we didn't schedule any training. And then I'm like, it's too early in the morning to get to Miguel. Yeah. <laughs> I just flopped. I jumped on a flight to Berlin. I said, screw it. I'm going to hang out in Europe now for a week. <laughs> no, so for me, they, they actually scheduled it, but they forgot to tell the people to come to the office. So everybody was working from home. That's crazy. Yeah, I've done some of that too. But like, come to, the, come to our office, but everybody's going to be online. And, and now you come to think about, uh, you know, what's the value of actual doing it online right now, live, versus record a video and have them look at it? What, where is the added value that I'm bringing there? And in class, it's almost all the time the interaction, right? They ask questions, you answer, you do that thing. But if people are silent most of the time and they don't ask anything and just, you know, doing a monologue, this is something that I... Um, I think that we I still need to figure it out completely. You're doing interesting things when you teach because you switch from the camera uh, to to the code and back and you, you draw on the on the whiteboard. So so you have more interest in, in things and you're more successful, I think, in getting people to ask you questions. Um, for me it's it's more of a struggle. Well, I tell everybody and I'm begging them to turn the cameras on, but I, I say it straight out. I will be teaching those that have the camera on. Those are the people I'm looking at. Those are the people I'm interacting with. Um, and so if you want the most out of this class, if you're serious about being here, turn that camera on. And I'll get five to, if I'm lucky, eight people. And that's who I teach to. I, I, I literally forget that everybody else is on this call. And I don't feel bad about it because you've chosen that you don't want to interact. Exactly. And But, you know, in a way, it's still... You want to deliver value to the customer. You want their people to learn. You need, you need to find a way to engage more people. And that, that's a struggle. That's that's something that uh, in class you can, you know, I can come into someone who's out there and just ask them a question, just to wake them up. Uh, and, or just, even if you just walk around near them and suddenly you see them flipping from the email back to the code and doing the exercise. So you can do things to uh, engage people. Uh, remote is much harder. What? What I try to do, even if I'm in a classroom with people and I feel like maybe people are tired or they're losing it, is I'll try to drop a joke. Jokes that I know are going to land. And if people laugh, then I know, okay, no, no, I still have everybody. <laughs> like I did this at Golang UK at like four o'clock, right? I know everybody's tired. Let me just throw this joke down. And more than half the room laughed. I'm like, okay, everybody's still with me. When they're not laughing at these jokes, and I know they're not, I know they're context-based too. Like I know they work. Then I know I've lost everybody. And that's when I'll just stop everything I'm doing and almost have that conversation with the, okay, you guys are all lost here. Cause I know that was funny. So <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> I think also the people who didn't listen and now everybody's laughing and they said, okay, what did we miss? Maybe we should pay attention because. All right. So you think as we got like about, we're going to wrap this up now. We've we're almost talked for an hour and a half. Um, you think that at least for the next 15 years, you you are fine with Python and Go. See, I'm nervous. I, well, I wake up every January 1st thinking that this is the last year I'll get to teach Go the way I'm doing it. And every year I'm wrong. Um, but at some point, that has to be true, right? Like Ruby was a programming language that there was a lot of corporate training around. 
for a long time and then it sort of stopped it then it went to boot camps and now it's out of the boot camps and now it's sort of wherever it is right so every language is going to go through that progression the fact that python some state has it that, that's the thing yeah, some, some languages do stay c++ is here java is here python is here you have languages yeah but it's corporate training selling are are companies paying thirty thousand dollars for the 20 plus hours of training for these other languages i mean they are with go and with python as well but, okay so that to me is that that when does the corporate budgets no longer make sense to bring a trainer in for a particular language? So a lot of time when I teach uh, things that are related more to the data analytics or data science, the problem is that the teams are usually small. It's usually in a, in a medium startup, these are four to five people. And then it's hard for them to say, you know what, let's, let's, give some, let's get someone to do training in-house for them, even though I've seen companies do it. So uh, it is possible and they get value for that. But um, in these areas when there's not a lot of people or sometimes you say, you know, we have just one product in Go and it's not that critical. So maybe, maybe no. What I'm worried about is there's enough expertise internally that they don't need to externally do the training. Like at some point you hit that critical mass. Yes, but there is also always a turnaround of people, people coming and going. And from what I see, learning in the job, uh, it's not not everybody does it. And I was uh, at the beginning. I was when I was teaching. I was giving the exercise. Tell them do it at home, and we'll talk about it tomorrow. They said, No, no, we want to do it now. I said, Why? Now I'm here at the class. Ask me questions. Let me talk to you about different uh, things. They said, No. The only time you're going to learn is right here in class. Once we go home, once uh, tomorrow after the course, we have work, we have production issues, we have tickets, uh, Jira tickets. We're not going to touch it. So th there is value in that, that they're sitting there with an instructor and the company is actually allocated time for them to sit down and, and learn. Otherwise, a lot of people just, you know, do what they do, maybe do copy and paste of Stack Overflow, but that's not going to cut it for a long while. I agree. I think Arden can live fairly well for the next decade, still just focusing on um, Go, right? And the things we do there. But I think if Arden wants to last longer, Rust had to be brought in, which is why we now have Herbert. We have to do that. And I think the longer term gamble is Zig because I'm seeing it pop up every week. I'm seeing Actually, I'm hearing about some job openings for Zig too, like small, but you know, languages come and go. But the moment somebody's like, "Oh, we're we're using a little bit of Zig," it's it's that Go thing again. I'm too tired and old to learn Zig <laughs> at the level I learned Go. Yeah. But I would, for me, I think going into next year, I'm going to push Miguel to find us a Zig developer who is like Herbert and start thinking about. Like that's the longest term play, right? That, that's interesting. And th that's what I said when I took a gamble with Go. You never know which one is going to stay and not. I think there is a certain point once there's enough infrastructure or uh, I call it a killer project for Go, Docker did that. Um, <clears throat> I don't for Python, I don't think there was one thing that actually did that. I, I can never say, you know, 
twisted. For example, there was in Python there's something called twisted, and then the initial implementation of BitTorrent was in twisted. So third of the internet at one point was on, on Python, uh, but there was not something really dominant uh, doing things. Maybe not, but Google used it. It's one of Google's four languages for ops and stuff, right? With two spaces, not four. Uh, <laughs> that's how you know it's a Google <laughs> code. Um, but uh, it, it's really hard to know. You, you never know, right? It's there, There's hype around the language. People are using it. People like it. But then until enterprise adopts a language, that that's a big part. They need to be sure that for them, you know, for me and for you, if you want to do our hobby project, that's a small bet for uh, an organization like Google or maybe someone else to make a bet on a, on a language. It's like saying nobody got fired for picking IBM. They want to to make sure that they're making a bet that is going to stay with them. And that's include training. I've learned one thing. I've learned one thing between Go and Rust that I would absolutely have to look at. And I don't have the answer for Zig. Um, the, I, I would need to fully appreciate what the governance model is for that language. Rust is in a really bad place right now because they had this idea of open governance, but there's a power struggle going on and that's going to hurt them. Like forget about the fact that the language is open source. Not everybody can fork a language and write, start writing compilers. That, that doesn't mean anything to me. It's the governance model. And I was very, very strong headed about go open, opening their governance model um, now I feel like an idiot doing that. And uh, if Russ Cox is listening to this at all, I apologize. <laughs> uh, because I think at the end of the day, and I appreciate at the end of the day that he held strong to keep that governance sort of locked down. I mean, it's open in the sense that we have people that left Google and they're still helping to participate. But I think it has served Go tremendously that there were a few uh, chefs in the kitchen as opposed to what I'm seeing happen in Rust. And, and this is what happened in Python. Python, uh, there was Guido who started the, the language. He's, he had the title of uh, benef benefactory, beneficial dictator for life. <laughs> and he actually resigned a few years back, but he did it smoothly. And there was a lot of process about geeks uh, looking at government's models and picking one up. and. Uh, it's really nice. So w once you have uh, a small set of people thinking, you get a coherent language, which everything falls in place. And I think Go is really shining there. That everything is, you see that the, it's not uh, designed by committee, but uh, so something really sits nice in language. I think it served it. Now, one day Russ might want to leave Google and it gets super interesting, but um, we're not there yet. So one, I do have to study the Zig sort of governance model. And if I feel like it's going to be open, open, that would, just from my experiences, you saw it with Node, right? And then they forked it. And like, I haven't seen it successfully work for something enterprise. I mean, you think about Java owned by Sun at that point, C Sharp owned by Microsoft. Um, I don't know what happens internally, but these kind of closed governance languages just tend to be more stable over time. I could be wrong. I don't have any empirical data to say that, okay? And I, I know you're not supposed to make these claims without empirical data, but just from the surface, I feel like that has been true. Yeah, I, th I think you're right. Um, 
maybe exceptions are C and C++, but I'm not sure how the governance goes there. The, these are committees that they have their own thing. I don't know, but... Yeah, remember Rob Pike's great quote? Did C++, did the C++ committee think that the problem with C++ is that it didn't have enough features? Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I understand oh, that. Man. The thing is, uh, it, you need some years in, in tech to understand that uh, what actually matters at the end are longevity and things that stay around and not things that move. I remember hearing um, the uh, the creator of Vim, Bram, Bram Uno, Bram, I forgot his last name or how to pronounce He passed away a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and people asked him, at the time, there were a lot of clones of, of VI. There was Vim, there was Elvis, there were several others. What, what made you successful? And he said, I just stayed there. I kept on going and going until, until they left. And I think uh, this is true also for, for other languages and other frameworks. All right. We're totally out of time, dude. But I, I really appreciate the uh, hour and a half you gave us here uh, to talk about your right, it was fun. background and, and your company and what you're doing. And Mickey is one of the best trainers on the planet, hands down. And I only know he's doing Python and Go, uh, but hands down. Um, I, you know, I'm really careful who we bring into Arden. I try really hard to make sure that we're the quality of the educators are where I want the quality of Arden to be. Um, and dude, I've never looked back from the time he decided to work with us. So thank you for that. It was, I think, two years until I convinced you that I'm good enough. But <laughs> <laughs> I get nervous, man. You know, I get, I, I, I get nervous. Reputation so. is so important. You, you really need to think about your reputation, who you bring in, how, how they do things. Yeah, that, that I totally understand. And you know me, and I've said this to you. It's like people come to a training for the person, not the company. And so you have to build. You have to be somebody who can build their own brand uh, people are showing up because they want to see mickey mickey just happens to be doing this for arden that's the side thing or my name right arden is there but you also have to be somebody who understands that like you have to build your own brand and your own following and your own material and and do that well it takes a lot of time it's really hard it's really easy to to ruin it so you need to be really careful all right, Mickey, if anybody wants to reach out to you after hearing the show, we'll put this in the show notes as well. What's the best way to talk to you? Uh, Mickey at audernobs.com. Nice. Like it. What's your other email for 353? Mickey at 353solutions.com. Nice. Both will work. All right, Mickey. Thank you again for all your time. This is the Arn Labs podcast signing off. We hope to see everybody again real soon.